everyone. Welcome to the show Off the Record. I'm Aram Mukumuf, the host. Thanks for tuning in. On the show, I'm interviewing well-known CEOs and VCs who have been in the trenches and have lots of practical advice to share from company stories, failures, and successes. As a founder, you'll hear what you can do better when raising money and after you have raised the money. And if you happen to be a VC, you're also in the right spot. Uh, you'll learn from your peers. So this is episode number 16, and I'm super fortunate to be joined today by Bruce Croxon. Uh, quick bio on Bruce, for those who don't know. Uh, many call him the modern renaissance man. <laughs> Today's guest uh, started delivering newspapers when he was only 12 for the Global Mail, making 5 to $7 a week before going to school at 7 a.m. He co-founded a company called Lava Life in 1988, long before social networking became a thing. And he sold it for $180 million, uh, with 2 million users at the time. He's been on uh, CBC's Dragon's Den show for three years and has been helping young companies grow their businesses for 20 plus years as an investor and advisor. Uh, right now, he's a partner at Round 13 Capital. Uh, so, Bruce, it's amazing to have you. It's a true honor. I've been following you for years, so it's awesome having you on our show today. Thank you for so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. And uh, I'm actually a little bit honored that you asked me because I've listened to your show a couple of times and you guys do a great job. Uh, more than happy to share my insights. Cool, cool. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about with you is is, uh, is a story about um, one of your last pitches that you, you participated in when you were on Dragon's Den in uh, year three. Um, it was a story about a woman from Rosedale, uh, from Toronto. So I'll kind of stop there and I'd love to get you to tell us a little bit more about that story and why, uh, what it meant to you. Well, that's, yeah, that's an interesting one to lead with, you know, because it was, you're right, it was my third and last year. Uh, the, the den is, is uh, characterized by, by, you know, 300 or so pitches uh, a season, uh, 20 days in a row. Um, so as much as you, you love to hear uh, entrepreneurial stories, and I very much do, uh, by the end of three, year, three years, I'd heard a lot of them. And there was, you know, a bit of a theme uh, that was emerging uh, with the Dragon's Den pitches in that, you know, they, you, you do have 40 minutes to make your pitch. It gets edited down to sort of the seven minutes that you see on TV. And like any business pitch um, or idea, it's a lot easier to get an idea going that actually solves a real problem. And, you know, my experience was that many of the pitches on the den you know, tried to convince us in the first 30 or so minutes that they were solving a real problem that we didn't even know the world had. And if they got us there, they, you know, they would spend the last 10 minutes talking about terms and whether we could would make a deal. So long story short, this, the last pitch was, uh, you know, this, this pitch from a, a lady in Rosedale and Rosedale is the area where people go when they've made too much money in Toronto and they want to sort of isolate themselves from the rest of the population. Kevin O'Leary lives in Rosedale, if you guys know Kevin. Um, and, he, and, and she came out with a, with a dog carriage that was designed to take your dog to the park when your dog got too old to get themselves there. And it was a beautiful dog carriage because Rosedale after all. Um, but I remember, you know, sort of leaning forward and talking to Jim Treliving. Uh, and this, this didn't make the edit, but Jim comes from a, a town of you know, a couple hundred people, I'm exaggerating, but Southern Manitoba, 
and I said, Jim, you know, you know what this dog carriage is for? I'd be curious what, what happens to dogs in Vernon, Manitoba, when they got too old to walk themselves to the park. And it wasn't a Rosedale dog carriage. It was more like a 10 cent solution. They're, they, they'd be done, you know, they put them out of their misery. So to me, it was just an example of, you know, a solution looking for a problem. Um, mm -hmm. And my message to entrepreneurs is, listen, you know, if you're thinking of an idea or a startup idea or, or you're trying to solve something, start with, with solving a real problem. Because at the end of the day, if you do that, the, the marketing dollars that you're going to have to spend, which you will have to spend, uh, except in very rare instances, um, it, it gets a lot easier and a lot less expensive because people don't have to, you know, try and figure out what problem you're trying to solve or, you know, they can, they can really get, get uh, it gets a lot easier to market the solution. So that's a very long way winded way of saying that, but she was a great illustration in my view of, you know, uh, of ideas we don't need, you know, we don't need, we don't need a Rosedale four wheel drive dog carriage to take our dogs to the park for a whole pile of reasons. Right, right, right. Perfect. Yeah. That's, that's, that was what I was trying to get. I think a lot of entrepreneurs go and build companies with a solution with no problem really behind it. So thanks for elaborating on that. Um, no next thing I want to ask is you, you mentioned this before in one of your talks and you said that if you're solving a big problem, you'll need to spend a lot less money to get people interested in this problem. What can early stage founders kind of take away from that? Well, I think, I think just that, you know, when, when you're sitting around brainstorming, I, I'd keep in mind a couple of things, you know, one is, you know, even, even before, you know, you get to the problem definition stage, you know, my advice would be pick a subject matter that, that, that naturally appeals to, to you, you know, that you're genuinely interested in because, mm -hmm. you know, my other message about early stage, uh, company building is it's, it, it's going to be really difficult. You're, you're, you, you're making the decision to, to, to start on a very challenging and difficult path. So at least if you're interested in the subject matter, you know, when, while you're, when you're busting your ass on a Sunday, because you're going to have to, it might seem a, a bit less like work if you have a genuine interest in the topic. But to your question, you know, there was a guy named Maslow that I remember learning a little bit about in school. One of the few things I did learn in school is this guy, you know, he had this thing called the hierarchy of needs, you know, basically uh, saying, look, we all need food in our, our stomach. If, if, you, if you can't eat, you're not going to survive. So, you know, if you have a food innovation idea, at yeah. least you're, you're, you're talking to, 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 a, to a subject matter that you're, you're appealing to a basic human need, right? You don't have to convince anyone that you need to eat, you know, and you move up from there. We need a roof over our head, generally speaking, um, mm -hmm. depending on where you live in the world, it gets easier or harder not to have a roof over your head, but that's genuinely what we're looking for next. And then, you know, the third thing is we're, we're, we're looking for companionship, you know? So when I launched Lava Life along with three other co-founders, uh, you know, that was basically looking to use the technology to put people together, we were appealing to a very basic human need, right? So uh, our marketing job just became so much easier um, because mm -hmm. we weren't having to explain why we were doing it because everybody innately is attracted to wanting to get together. And it was a more efficient way to do that. 
so it was a, it was a natural. Um, and, and I think that really helped us when it came time to spend marketing dollars. We didn't have to spend any money explaining, you know, what it is we were trying to do. It was just, hey, show up here. And mm-hmm. if you're a guy, there's a good chance you're going to meet some women. And, and for, for you women, there's a good chance on, the, well, there's a very good chance on the vice versa, right? So our, our challenge was, you know, convincing women that it was a safe and secure place to participate in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Regarding ideas and, and team, um, I think you've seen a lot of mediocre, mediocre ideas work when executed by a really great killer team. Was there any kind of learnings you want to share from that or anything you want to touch upon that? But sure. also, was there like a business that surprised you through your time recently that did really well as a result of that? Yeah, well, I have to search the memory banks on that. But my, 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 gen- my message in general on that topic, like, and it comes from a you know, don't, don't do it just as I say, do as I do. I, I've never done anything alone in my career. I've always, actually, that's not entirely true. I, I, I had my own tree planting crew where I was the sole person in charge of the, of the rest of the crew. But mm-hmm. generally speaking, I've sought out partners, right? And the reason for that is quite simply that, you know, I, I'm good at a, a couple of things. Um, but I'm also got a long list of things that I'm, I'm not a subject matter expert in that I need help in. And, you know, my bias has always been to work with people that were as vested as I am in the outcome, but that might have different uh, skill set that they bring to the table. So I go to an inordinate lengths to figure out, you know, whether the, the people I'm investing in or prior to that working with, uh, have the characteristics to be good team members, right? So, you know, I mean, I'll go back, I'll just for convenience sake, I'll go back to the example I gave you where, you know, when I was, when I was a university student and I had the opportunity after two years of planting trees on my own to actually pick my own crew uh, to bring into the bush in Northern British Columbia that, that conditions are, are horrible it, you know, the bugs are bad. If you, if you get paid by the tree, so some days really test your fortitude, you know, and I, I, I picked a bunch of people that were used to being on competitive sports teams where they'd look to the left and they'd look to the right and they'd, and they would, uh, you know, not, they, they refused to lose because you'd be losing your team, letting down your teammate as well. And they were competitive by nature. So that was my sort of screen on the type of, team that would do well in that environment and you know there was 13 of us uh 12 12 ended up being excellent choices um you know one person that the the conditions just got too much for them and that was a person that i had gotten talked into bringing along Hmm. by somebody that i had chosen using my filter right so i i my gut was telling me that it wasn't right uh but we brought him anyway and Every time in my career where my gut or my core value sort of meter has said, you know what, looks like a good technical fit, but something's not right in terms of what we've determined would be a good core value fit. I've been burned every time in my career. You get a good little initial hit because you filled a technical gap, but I've been let down in the long run. So my biggest single lesson actually to VCs or to operators 
is you know pay, pay very close attention to the characteristics that you've decided are are best for growing this business, but screen ruthlessly for them because there's going to be good times and bad times. And when the bad times happen, which they always do, people's true character comes out and you'll, you'll see what the team is made of at that time. This is a great segue to my next question I had about how do you go about advising and, and telling people what to look for when they're picking their teammates and like eventually later when they get to the point of like, you know, finding a good investor or VC to join their company. Like yeah, what's like the litmus test or, you know? Yeah, really good question. And it's a, it's a very personal question uh, in that it, it, it varies by, by team, by industry, by the, 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 the type of company that you're trying to build, right? Mm -hmm. So in my case, building a venture capital team or an investing team, it was very important for me to attract people that um, were open-minded, had some semblance of introspection, were able to come into a meeting where they, you know, sometimes done a month worth of, of deep work and then for somebody to come up with a point of view that may have been contrary to their own and mm -hmm. having the the lack of ego to be able to take that input even if it came from somebody that might not have as much experience you know uh, you've got all kinds of personal capital invested in this idea that you're trying to push through in this case investment committee who are you to say you know that 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 I'm you're you know you're right and I'm wrong. Good teamwork relies on collaboration, being able to work with others, being able to check your ego at the door. So that was very important for me to screen for those things. So if right. I'm advising a company, I would suggest, you know, if it's in the area of technology, just to use one example, information is coming at us so quickly and the data is moving so fast that I think it's increasingly impossible for any one person to have all the answers. I just, I don't meet many of those people. I mean, Bill Gates may have been one, Elon Musk may be another. There's outliers, right? But mm -hmm. there, there's very few lone rangers out there. And, and, and if there are, I don't wanna take the risk on them. So, you know, what is it about you that will allow you to build a team around you that you'll take their input you'll foster a, a sense of, 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 of working together because I think you're going to need it. So if someone right. shows up with all the answers, uh, you know, we're, we're probably less inclined to want to invest in them. And it would be my advice to them as well. Look, that would be one characteristic of say four or five that might mm -hmm. be more personal to you, but I think that's an important one. Super. Oh, that's awesome. So screen, um, so screen, so screen heavily for it, right? right Find right, right. a way to get at it in your interview process, you know, what kind of team member this person really is going to be would be my mm -hmm. advice. Okay. Um, regarding self-awareness, I want to talk about that. Um, in my opinion, I think in yours as well, it's a, it's a big success factor. Um, when did you get your major self-awareness kind of breakthrough and what was it? Well, you know, listen, I've spent, I, I'm a huge proponent of, 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 of therapy and therapists. I just actually got finished a call before this podcast with a, a young person that was really struggling with COVID and some of the challenges of our industry, uh, of, of the demands of it. 
um, and I, I, I was giving that person the same message, like you, people spend their life studying the human brain. They've seen all kinds, you're not a unique case. You might think you're mm. unique, but you're not. Trust me, whatever it is that you're dealing with. For me, my initial breakthrough uh, was I was in my early 20s um, and I had decided to spend the next sort of 18 months traveling the, the, the globe. I'd just come off a tree planting stint. Tree planting was a very lucrative way to make money for a young person in a short period of time. Mm -hmm. The currency I made traveled very well in Southeast Asia. I could live for, for very inexpensively. And the people that I met uh, on the road that were bright enough, driven enough, curious enough to be doing any one of a number of things with their lives, but were actively choosing to uh, explore the world, right? And then go back and make enough money to come back and do it again. And that is how a lot of them had decided to, to, to live at least their 20s, right? Where back in, you know, where I came from, people were like, gotta get going got to get going on the career, got to, you know, got to be here when I'm 22, got to be here when I'm 25. And I just said, you know what, there's, there's, there's so many different ways to lead your life. And there's so many different ways to get an education. And it's not all about, you know, this has got to be the way it needs to be done. So mm -hmm. that's when I became, you know, fully aware of, of, of questioning some of the things that I've been socialized to believe. Um, and I think I've sort of carried that, you know, combined with, I think, a natural curiosity that I have of, of difference and the way different people have chosen to do it. Then um, I think that serves me well. That's really interesting. And thanks for sharing that story. Yeah, um, no problem. I had no idea. <laughs> um, <coughs> right. uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of founders are in many ways committed to product-led growth, um, but you know, we both know, I think, with technology these days that product can be easily copied, especially technology can be copied. Would you say, like, where's like the new frontier or, you know, do you think that sales and marketing is the new barrier to entry, you know, going forward? Uh, yes, I do. Um, you know, and I've watched it evolve over 20 plus years. You know, when I started out in in tech and, and, and built Lava Life and you know, all the social networking computing that went with that, um, combining voice and, and telephone, or telephony and, and online when it became popular in the mid nineties, uh, you know, keeping uh, credit card encryption and putting lots of people uh, onto the bandwidth to interact in a real, real time environment. The technology was big and it was expensive um, and it acted as a barrier to entry because people didn't really understand what it was that we were doing. Uh, if you gave me, you know, five smart programmers, a UI expert and one, you know, 50th the amount of capital, I could duplicate what we did then today and it would work better. Mm -hmm. So yes, um, product is important. Don't get me wrong. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, critical in terms of converting users uh, uh, and the flow is, is it remains very important. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just doesn't take as long and it's not as expensive as it used to be. So yes, in my mind, um, we are in a, a time where speed is important. 
and you know how quickly you can get product market fit and then build on it in an economical way, uh, usually involving capital ahead of, of profit in order to okay. capture your, your section of the growth market. Um, I think that is, yes, yes, indeed. As you said, I think that is uh, this century's version of the, uh, of the barrier to entry. And just like on that point, where do you think the real differentiation is going to come from for like new or emerging companies other than products and, and things like that? Is it like positioning? Is it like getting access to the right kind of users, speed? Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, the, the, the benefit of the time we're in, which is characterized by cloud computing mm -hmm. and the costs coming out of the system, um, the real benefit and implication to uh, product marketers is that if you do your job right and you do get, you know, in, 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 to use an example, an enterprise using your solution, just to use a business to business example. Um, as long as you, you, you maintain the system and listen to your customer and stay on a, on a, on, on a, on a mutually acceptable product roadmap, the cost you're, you're charging them versus having done it on their own a decade ago is a fraction, right? So there really isn't mm -hmm. a lot of reasons that a customer should churn unless they go out of business or they, or they merge with somebody that has a different solution, then you don't need to, but that doesn't happen every day. Right? So, you know, the new, the new, and, and you can innovate a lot from, in, from within in that environment because you've got, you know, as your, as your, your large, relatively large number of customers versus a decade ago that are spending mm -hmm. a little bit of money, but aren't leaving you. It's a it's a beautiful test bed for what works and what doesn't. You know, it's mm -hmm. you know the old A/B testing has survived. Like, I mean, what about this product? And the and the and the information and the feedback comes back to you very quickly as to whether or not that's a good idea or not. So, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not I think I'm not sure I answered your question directly, but I mean, the environment for innovation and pushing products ahead, uh, it's never been more conducive to doing so. Okay, cool. Um, the next one or two questions I have are, are going to be around funding and fundraising. Um, so let's have a, a hypothetical example. An early stage founder has done a successful raise. Money is in the bank now and like they need to kind of figure out what they do with it. So they have milestones they need to hit. What would you recommend to them that they start doing next? You know, questions that they need to ask themselves perhaps. So the stage that I'll, I'll talk from the stage that round 13 capital uh, usually Please, gets sir. involved. So that, you know, the product market fit is, has, has happened. Uh, they've got customers, they understand uh, the dashboard of customer behavior, which is, you know, to me as table stakes, like where did all these customers come from? Mm -hmm. What did it, what did it cost you to acquire them? What's the propensity to stick around? So you're starting mm -hmm. to get a feel for how long they might remain your customer. And what's the gap between what that value to you as a company is long-term and what it is that you paid to get them. So when we, when we come along with a, either a five or a 10 or a $20 million check, you know, we understand 
the customer behavior as it's presented to us and would be very hopeful that um, you know, a good percentage of our dollars are actually gonna go into the channels that they've already started to prove in order to acquire more customers at, at, at more or less the same economics. So my advice to the founders would be get that dashboard in place and in order, which you probably have done or else you wouldn't have got our money in the first place. Um, but then get you know, really good at um, understanding how the sales and marketing machine is gonna work at scale. And we'll help you do that because you know, I don't expect the founders to have all the answers at this stage. Um, you know, we have expertise in-house that have scaled companies using you know, sales and marketing um, accepted matrix and practices, mm -hmm. metrics and practices, sorry. Um, but I, I would quickly get that product focus lens shifted or augmented by a go-to-market at scale uh, lens um, and, and understand and make sure you, you surround yourself with people that have had some experience doing that. Mm -hmm. And just like on that, on that point, like some, some organizations uh, or some people that we've had on the show, uh, some of their investors really push towards like, okay, hiring more, more headcount, more, more talent. So they do like a, a series A round of like, okay, you have product market fit, now go, we want you to scale. Um, obviously, as a founder, that could be concerning at times because like, well, I don't really need to scale if I don't have to, but my investors are kind of pushing for it, right? So it's like, how do you kind of manage that relationship? Is it, I don't need to scale that fast because I need to hit these unit economics, you know, properly, quarter over quarter, milestone by milestone. What, what would you recommend there to, um, yeah, Those people well, my, my recommendation to the founders would be, look, there, there, there's, there's, there's many different paths to an outcome, okay? So, um, you know, there's lots of great companies that are built over time, slow and steady, paying attention to the margins, uh, you know, um, never dipping too far into negative EBITDA uh, mm -hmm. uh, as you go. But I think, you know, you really need to ask yourself if that's, how you wanted to grow a company in a hot space, you know, right. why you went to a venture capitalist in the first place. So my advice would be do your thinking in advance. You can build a lifestyle business, although there's lots of literature and books that would say, you know, grow or die, you know, innovate or die, um, you know, yeah. make sure you're, 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 you're chunking off market share because if you don't, somebody else will. And I must admit that is, that is my school of thought too when it comes to technology businesses because it's tough to put up a technology barrier to entry. Um, over time, competitors will come uh, if you've proven something that is a, a solution to, to a defined problem, right? Just, mm -hmm. It's just going to happen. So, you know, the companies that we're used to saying understand that, they understand that the reason that they're taking $10 million from us is that they want to be part of uh, a, a, a shot at market leadership in whatever sector that they've chosen to compete in. So if you're not gonna use the 10 million for that, it does beg a question, you know, uh, what it is that you're, you're, you're taking on a partner that, that clearly has that expectation, you know, why, why are you doing that, right? If, if, if you're not on the same page. So thankfully, you know, um, deals 
uh, and the marriage of a, of, a, of a growth stage operator and a growth stage uh, check writer, these, these relationships, uh, you know, take, take many months to form. Um, mm -hmm. And there's lots of back and forth on intention and best practice and expectations. Uh, but, you know, again, the right questions need to be asked, you know, and mm -hmm. I would encourage founders to get very clear on, on, on the type of people that you're, you're, you're letting in uh, because many companies have fallen apart at the boardroom table back to your our earlier discussions on team. Yeah. You become part of a team, right? And how's the venture capitalist going to be when things aren't going as well? Well, I'm an entrepreneur. I've had many uh, cycles in my career where things weren't going well. And I can mm -hmm. tell you how I'm going to be. I'm going to be supportive. We're going to dig in. But it's really, really difficult if your vision and intentions were not aligned out of the gate, right? If you're aligned mm -hmm. out of the gate, we'll get through it together. If they're not aligned out of the gate, um, you know, you're going to have problems. Just on that point, um, I was discussing this earlier with somebody. Uh, wanted to get your thoughts on it. Uh, I'm sure you know this, but the CEO of Zoom and I think the Stuart Butterfield, the CEO of Slack, <coughs> all raised earlier earlier rounds of funding, I think Series A uh, uh, funds, where they actually didn't touch the money which they raised. And they said that we don't need to spend it, so it's just there. But uh, they wanted to make sure that what they had works until they finally got to the next round of funding. It was like an insurance policy for them. Kind of, right, yeah. They yeah. didn't touch the money because they weren't yet 100% confident yet about, about uh, spending it. And so they played the risky bet because they wanted to see that they can get the revenues first, right? Like I wanted to get your, your thoughts on that. It's like, what's the point in raising money in a way, right? Well, I mean, listen, if you have a very strong offering like Slack did, mm -hmm. I, I, I can speak a little less knowledgeably to Zoom when they actually raised it, if they had hit pandemic yet, where they were actually you know, scaling at a rapid pace. Listen, there are some companies that are, are, are just, you know, have, have, have hit the product market fit so, so well and so squarely uh, that you, you know, you can't help but believe that they're going to make it. If it's not going to be a multi-unicorn, it's certainly going to be something where you're not going to lose your money. And obviously the, 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 the competition to put money into those companies can be quite fierce. Right. And, the, and the founder, if they're in that enviable position, you know, can have the luxury of saying, you know what, listen, I'm going to raise some money. Um, I'd like to take some off the table. I don't know if there was any secondary involved in offhand in uh, Slack or Zoom's uh, uh, Series A raise um, where they could, you know, I know there was, for example, uh, to use another Vancouver-based uh, uh, example was um, Hootsuite, thank you very much, right? That you know, that, and 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 the founder there took a, a you know a big whack of, of secondary off the table, yeah. because you know they'd convinced Omers that like they they were on their way and 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 they didn't really need the money, but if you want to partner with us, here's how I'd like to use it, and so those deals happen, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they're not typical round thirteen deals um, because you end up paying a, I think a hefty price. Uh, yeah. as an investor uh, for to be to have the privilege 
of participating in such a magnificent story, but it doesn't yeah. come without risk, right? Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. No, thanks. Um, you know this as well as I think a lot of other people uh, do in the space about, you know, moving fast, as you said, is really essential as a startup. Um, well, both. Moving fast and executing is really critical, right? We, we talked about it earlier. Um, are there any suggestions you would give to founders in this area, like moving moving too fast, or uh, what are the what what compromises, what what kind of issues might you run into if you're doing that um, uh, too aggressively? Um, yeah, you know, is it like listen, yeah, yeah. Uh, so in the air, you know, sticking on the, in the just in the areas we've talked about, right? I mean. There, there, there is such a thing as spending too much money to get a customer, right? I, I saw this behavior uh, back in 2000, and I'm seeing some evidence of it today, although you know not nearly to the extent. And that was like, listen, you know, customers are the most important thing, clients are the most important thing. Trust us, we'll figure out how to monetize. Uh, them later to make mm -hmm. sense of how much it, we had to spend to get them, right? And there's there's tons of money that, of course, was burned in the process of, of, uh, of, of, of laying down the infrastructure or, or acquiring, acquiring those customers or clients. And, right. you know, sometimes the market just doesn't catch up, right? And you don't figure out uh, uh, ways to make those customers more valuable. So, I think at least having the data to discuss with your partners mm -hmm. and, and, and the people that have invested with you to say, listen, here's what we think the right amount to spend is to get a customer. And you know, we just had this discussion two weeks ago at, at, at the board level of one of our software as a service business to business plays where we loosened the reins on them. You know, they've been, okay. they've been in our mind too conservative. Uh, 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 you know, that the industry had been hit a bit by, by the pandemic, but there's signs of it coming out. And that's about risk management. Like, listen, instead of spending X on a customer, let's, let's, let's double it up because there is some evidence now that payments in this case and, and one or two other channels, we're starting to show some evidence that they may deliver, be able to deliver revenue down the road, right? right. So that, that is a calculated gamble uh, to spending more but it's but it came after a discussion the data was looked at and we made the the, the decision as partners um many times back to your original question you know you can blow your brains out on on customer acquisition that either churned out the bottom or delivered half the uh, acv annual contract value that you envisioned when you first started sort of launch the idea so you just got to mm -hmm. keep an eye on it mm -hmm. okay Okay, a um, couple more questions, Bruce. Uh, I want to ask a question about work-life balance. Um, I know it's important for you. So, uh, as as founders, you know, we all think about business twenty-four-seven. You know, in our sleep, we probably dream about it. Um, you know, that's not really work-life balance in a way. But what's your philosophy on on that in general that you could share? Yeah, uh, it's a very tricky subject. Okay, so I will preface my comments. Um, to those that are listening uh, to say that there's no right answer. Um, and that includes my own. Okay. So I'm not holding myself up as 
this is the way that it needs to be done. Uh, but in my experience, and it goes partly back to my comment about choosing what you love, uh, because to me, um, you know, on an early stage, fast moving technology business, let's talk about that, because that's the area that I know, uh, it is very difficult to not be working and thinking about your business and product 724 for the period of time that you're growing, scaling, uh, and mm -hmm. hopefully exiting. So my, my definition of work-life balance for early stage entrepreneurs is work like crazy for 10 years, commit eight, 10 years of your life to the dream, realize some reward for that, and then take a year or two off and travel the world or do whatever it is that you want to do. Now, listen, while you're doing that, exercise like crazy, you know, uh, I don't know how you raise a family while you do it because I didn't have to do it. I got out of the gate late on the kids thing. It was a, like, it was past my intense startup time. Uh, that was a calculated decision of mine. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's easy, right? And I'm not saying it's not possible to do it while raising a family. And I'm not saying it's not possible to do it while taking your weekends off and having the conventional work-life balance. It just hasn't been possible in my experience, right? But listen, I'm open to learn new tricks. If someone's got the way to do it because they're, they've, they've, they've augmented their team in exactly the right way, they've, uh, they've just got a killer product market fit idea that's solving a real world problem so that marketing doesn't have to be, you know, you have to bite your nails every day about marketing, where are we gonna get our users? Uh, you know, they, they, they brought wisdom to the table that I didn't have when I was in my twenties and thirties. Hey, bring it on. But that's my answer to the question. And, uh, that's my, my, been my definition of work-life balance. I've been very good at going off the, the, the planet or the, the, the map when I needed to do it, but it's usually after I've, you know, achieved something and put a, put a few dollars in my jeans. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, Thanks. Yeah, that, I I love the perspective. I I think for many it's it's a dream, right? If you could augment out everything and you know everything's running in cruise control, it is a pipe dream of mine. <laughs> Maybe one day I'll figure it out, right? <clears throat> um, keep keep grinding. I mean, what as an old as a buddy of mine is fond of saying, you know, if you hang around the hoop long enough, you'll catch a ball, right? So yeah, the first thing is making the decision to hang around the hoop. Like we're we're choosing this lifestyle for a reason. Um, Hopefully you enjoy it, right? Because it gets very difficult if you don't enjoy it. And hey, you know, I'd be amiss if I didn't point out that, you know, it's not for everybody. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with working Monday to Friday, punching the clock, taking a gig economy job because you're more into surfing, right? Or you're more into this or that or whatever it happens to be to each their own, right? It's just that, you know, in my experience, if you're trying to build a company, scale it, grow it in a very hyper competitive, you know, no barrier to entry environment, it's just very difficult to do without giving it your all. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think passion and uh, um, focus is commitment. Is, it's the key things to making a business survive. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, last question for you, Bruce. I always like asking this question because it keeps people... Uh, 
on the on on the on on the edge. Uh, so, what is one thing about running a business that your friends, founders, partners disagree with you on specifically? Yeah. So, you know, my I think my biggest weakness as uh, as a CEO and then as a investor mm-hmm. was that I, I tend to, I'm an optimist. I'm, I'm a huge optimist, which I think on balance has served me well uh, in, um, in, in my life. Okay. Um, I have deliberately uh, augmented my team with more black hat people, like people that are not as optimistic uh, as I am, that tend to look at the downside more than I do, that tend to remind me that not everybody can execute on an idea. It takes these characteristics. Um, so Bruce, just because you think you could do it doesn't mean uh, anybody can do it. I need, I need to be reminded of that. So, you know, I think the thing that we, we, we clash heads on the most is like, should this person still get our support after what we've been through? Should this team member still be part of the team after we've been through? And I think my leash sometimes is longer than is prudent. Um, and I recognize mm-hmm. that. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, some of the guys on the team have been, uh, have, have gotten pretty good at, you know, pointing it out to me uh, in no uncertain terms when we get it, when we get down to it. Yeah. I got, I got actually one more that just, I, I thought of, um, what, what advice, I mean, you have a lot of experience now with everything you've done through, what advice would you give to a 30 year old self? Uh, surround yourself with people with experience, you know, um, you don't know what you don't know. Uh, you know, my, my, my partner in round 13, John Eckert, uh, started the first software, uh, fund in the country. Uh, 30 years ago or so, okay, and he, he invested in one of my companies. We sat around a boardroom table for six years. He's been through two cycles, um, you know, and we actively believe at round 13 that the right advice into a 30-year-old founder at the right time can actually yeah. make a big, big amount of difference. So we've, we've structured ourselves to be able to do that. Now the trick is, is making sure we pick people that are open to that perspective, right? So Mm -hmm. my advice would be stay open-minded, you know, uh, even if things are going fantastically well, they're going to change. You're all, nothing's up, not everything. There's no such thing as up to the right all the time. So surround yourself with people that, uh, that, that can bring something to the table and stay open to that. Cool. Cool. Awesome. That's, that's great. Um, so thank you, Bruce, so much for joining us on Off the Record. Uh, thank you to everybody who's going to be listening. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> this was another Off the Record episode. So just a reminder, it's a new podcast with the goal to build a community of founders and VCs around it so they can help make their businesses better. So thanks again, uh, and I'll see you next time. Thanks again, Bruce, for your time. It was, thanks a, it was for, a pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you. We are proud.